0: It is the first Sunday of the month, and so what I like to do on the first Sunday of every month is to just share with you ways that I feel like God is challenging me. Themes, heart, soul, mind, and strength, relationship, prayer, scripture, knowledge, and serving that I feel like God is putting on my heart or that I just wanna focus on because I realize maybe it's been a blind spot and it hasn't kinda been on my radar for a while. And again, I encourage you to do the same. Discipleship starts with us no one else can be a disciple for us. We have to have that hunger. We have to have that pursuit of Christ. And one good way is to use Jesus' great commandment to love God, heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbors yourself as one template to use to say, am I really growing holistically in my love for God and my love for my neighbor? So in the area of heart, um, I'm really excited to have my mom here for two weeks. And um, as many of you know, my, yeah, you you can applaud. She does good work raising young man like me. I was joking with my mom, I was like, oh, you know, afterwards, you're gonna talk to a lot of people. She's like, I don't know, I don't know a lot of people. I'm like, you're like a celebrity in our church, mom, everyone knows who you are, it's great. Um, uh, My wife teaches at Trinity Western for two weeks on campus this time of year. My mom comes to help, and that's an awesome opportunity for us to connect through regular everyday life. She gets to step into my world as chaotic and challenging as it is with uh, our family. But that's a really special time and I, and I want always wanna steward that time with her this time of year. And also, Rick's mom is here. Yeah, the moms are here. That's awesome. We had a great drive back from Spokane and shared some Arby's and bonded, it was really good. Arby's is so, don't laugh at Arby's. It's, Rick and I were saying, that's the restaurant that Nelson needs, Arby's. So good. Ugh. Soul, uh, I'm going to be just spending time meditating on this section of scripture that we're going to steep in quite a bit this month, Ephesians 5, 15 to 6, 9. In the area of mind, I just came back from Denver, took a course through our denomination called Mission and Ministry. I've got a number of papers I need to write over the next, I think it's two, two and a half months. And I really want to do a good job on those. Those are pretty serious reflections around what is the nature of mission and ministry? What does it look like in your church? What are ways that you need to grow in that? And my temptation with especially when I take a course that's kind of running concurrently with my regular life. My temptation is to sort of look at the course, pound out a paper and be done with it. And I really don't want to do that with uh, what's in front of my plate with these, um, the book reflections, because I think there's really important things that I want to make sure I'm clearly articulating to myself so that uh, I'm kind of sharpening my thinking in this area. And lastly, in the area of strength, this month, I want to focus on all kinds of ways to support the Nelson Food Cupboard or the Nelson uh, Community Food Center. It's kind of been rebranded. Now, I'm also saying that as a challenge to you. One of the things that our missions committee is going to do this year is emphasize one way, one organization or one theme or one group of people, demographic within our community every month, and encourage you to support them. And we'll highlight different ways to do that, but we thought we'd start with the Nelson Community Food Center. The Nelson Community Food Center is a really, really amazing organization in town. It provides fresh, local, organic produce and food to those who are struggling, maybe between jobs, people who are finding it hard to make ends meet, people who have access to food, but maybe don't know how to prepare it properly or how to eat, how to prepare a healthy meal. They've never been taught that. Very, they just don't have a lot of skills when it comes to planning meals and cooking meals. So they also run pl- um, food planning and cooking classes. This is what we want to do this month. we will say more about this. We'll show some videos next week. But for now, I'd really encourage you to go to their website this week. It's Nelson CFC, so Nelson Community Food Cupboard nelsoncfc.ca, and just spend some time on their website. They have an excellent website that details all their programs, all their initiatives. They even have a a tab that talks about ways that you can get involved from regularly volunteering as part of their Monday through Thursday programming, being part of their harvest team that harvest fruit trees in in the harvest season and bring that food to the uh, food cupboard. We wanna encourage you to consider a financial donation to them this month. We're also gonna give you the opportunity, uh, starting next week we'll have a a box out and you can bring food here. If you kind of are on Sunday morning, you're like, oh yeah, I know some food cupboard. Just bring it to church and um, I will make sure it gets down there during the week. Eggs that are just under the table out in the lobby that you can fill. You can go door to door in your neighborhood and fill them and say, hey, I'm collecting for the Nelson food cupboard. Would you be willing to donate? We don't care how you choose to support them, but we just encourage you to do so. Even better, if you can make it down there on a Monday through Thursday, they're in the basement of the United Church just down the road here, and just get to know their volunteers, support them, thank them for what they're doing. It's an amazing organization, and we really want to highlight lots of different ways through which you can support them this month. So that's going to be my focus in terms of serving and giving, and I hope that you will join us in that. Okay, let me pray for a moment, and then we'll move into Ephesians chapter 5, starting at verse 15. God, put a fire in our hearts for your word. And not just to hear it, but to receive it with the desire to apply it, with the desire to be obedient to it, to stand under its authority in our lives. As we move through this text and this really, really challenging section of Scripture, Holy Spirit, would you guide us into your truth, reveal your truth, to us, open your word so that we can see all of the wonderful things that are there for us. In Jesus' name, Amen. This is a big chunk of scripture, Ephesians 5, 15 to 6.9, but I want to emphasize this for the next few weeks because all of these things have to be understood as part of the broader context. Ephesians 5:15, be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord. Always give thanks to God the Father for everything, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it just as Christ does for the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Fathers, don't exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but like slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly, as if you were serving the Lord, not men, because you know that the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good he does, whether he is slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven." and there is no favoritism with him. So I know what you're thinking, and no, I didn't intentionally plan to arrive at this section in Ephesians of wives submitting to their husbands the very weekend my wife was away teaching at Trinity Western. It's just convenient. (laughs) I couldn't find it online, but I remember hearing about a comic, one of those church comics from way back in the day, that has the Apostle Paul arriving in Ephesus. And as he's arriving, there's this big protest that's greeting him and it's a bunch of women with placards up in the air. And they all kind of revolve around the same sentiment. And the central placard is a, is a big one that says, Paul is a misogynist, which, you know, that word just means uh, women hater. Paul is a misogynist. And the caption is speaking for Paul under the comic. And he's like, oh, I see you got my letter. When you read through this passage, there are different elements that will stand out simply because of our cultural situatedness, where we are. For some, maybe for many, this line about wives submitting to your husbands is the most offensive, challenging part of this text. But slaves obey your masters probably runs a close second. For many people, it's passages like these that turn them off and turn them away from Christianity, right? Even if you've been tracking with the Ephesians series, there's kind of been nothing like this thus far, not controversial in this sense, inspirational, right? Ephesians was really good so far, but someone might be thinking, but wait a second, if this is kind of the end game, if all of that inspiration and what God has done for us and now how should we live in response to God, if it's all pointing towards this as what it means to be a faithful Christian, then I'm out. This text has no place in modern society. And I definitely understand that point of view. This section in Ephesians has been used and misused to justify all kinds of actions and attitudes that are immoral and sinful and selfish and wrong. And it doesn't take much of an imagination to see how you could extract some of these verses and use them as leverage points against other people, over and against other people, to justify all kinds of domineering and abusive behavior. And that has been done in the church. I'm sure if we opened up the floor, people could tell stories of how texts like these have been used against them. And so that's why it's really important that we kind of stay in this larger body of text over the next few weeks because there's a lot here that we need to get right because the consequences of getting it wrong are pretty spectacular. And there are certain scriptures that are like that, right? I mean, we might not fully understand what Jesus means to love God, heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbor as ourself. But if we make a mistake with that verse, the wake of that mistake will probably be less because we're trying to love people. If we adopt... Um, superficially, uncritically, reflexively, wives submit to your husbands, wives submit to your husbands in everything, this is kind of part of your your core calling in the Lord, that has a a massive chance of being expressed in a way that is uh, counter gospel, that leads us away from Jesus, leads us away from the kind of life God has for us, leads us away from the love and glory of the Christian message. So I'm gonna stay in this text and kind of move through it through a number of different angles and perspectives so that hopefully in a few weeks, by the time we've kind of taken in all, these dim- all the different dimensions of the text, we have a proper and full understanding and our ability to misuse or misread or misapply the text is much, much, much lower so how do you approach a text like this right you can read it you can get triggered it's easy to dismiss it out of hand a lot of people do that a lot of people will just read these things and say well that's what paul wrote that's not god's words and that's paul's perspective and i just reject it and i just kind of look at verses that strike me intuitively as wrong or out of step with my philosophy and then i just dismiss them but i just want to invite all of us to recognize no matter what the content of the verse is that would trigger that response in us that is not a faithful and genuine and God glorifying Christian response because we do not stand in judgment over the Word of God it stands in authority and judgment over us so we don't get to say yeah this part's good this part's bad we we can just ignore this part this part I take seriously I like this right because what we're doing when we do that inadvertently maybe is we're creating God in our own image We're creating a God that will never disagree with us, right? We're just uh, cutting out the stuff that offends us. And as Timothy Keller says, if you create a God, if you read the Bible that way, if the approach to your Christian life is like that, where you just ignore or dismiss or outright reject certain parts of Scripture out of hand because they strike you as offensive, you are not following the true and living God. You're following an idol in your own making. So we have to grapple seriously and strenuously with this text so that we understand what it says and how to apply it. These verses about wives submitting to their husbands, slaves submitting to their masters, children obeying their parents, these are obvious candidates for seriously harmful misunderstandings and misapplication. So it's really important for us to talk about hermeneutics for a second. Okay, hermeneutics is a big fancy word that just means the methodology or the process through which we interpret a biblical text. So you have a chunk of scripture or a verse or a whole canon of scripture. How do we interpret what's going on there? That's called hermeneutics. And you learn this in seminary. You can read books on hermeneutics. But here's hermeneutics 101. A faithful biblical hermeneutic seeks to answer three questions, at least three questions. First of all, what does the text say? What is there? The second is, what does the text mean? What is is it intending to communicate? And the third is, how should it be applied? Now, what does the text say is kind of the first stage of any hermeneutic. You actually read the text. You don't just take it on secondhand knowledge. I think the Bible somewhere says God helps those who help themselves. Okay, wait, chapter and verse. I want to understand. I want to back this up. Is it, is it actually something that the Bible says? Step two is where many, many people go wrong. And that's because the temptation is to either think there is no step two or doing step one is the same as step two. I read the Bible. It says this and I can jump right away to application. But I think any approach to understanding the Bible that jumps from the first question, what does the text say, leapfrogs over the second and goes right to the third, it might be well-intended, but the Word of God counsels us in 2 Timothy to correctly handle the Word of Truth. And I think when we skip that second question, that second step of hermeneutics, we are not correctly handling the Word of God. We might be efficient, we might be well-intended, but that's not how to correctly handle God's Word. Now, that's important to say, and I'm throwing down a bit of a gauntlet there because I know in some church circles, there's absolutely a way of interpreting the Bible that does away with that second step and that says that that's what real, faithful, serious, Bible-centered people, that's how you should read the Bible. And sometimes it's reinforced through statements like, you know what? The Bible says what it means and it means what it says. Bam. I'm super Christian. Right? The Bible says it. I believe it. That's that. I take the Word of God at face value. I don't want human interpretation and human philosophies to go muddying up what the clear Word of God says. Now, there may be a nugget of Uh, well-intended truth there in the sense that we want to take the Bible very seriously and as the authority over our lives as Christians. But often, well, can you see how those statements could be used to discourage people from even entering into the second question? Wives, submit to your husbands. I wonder if there's more than, hmm, I wonder if there's other stuff going on there. Nope, nope. Bible says what it means and meaning what it says. So now how should we apply it? Now we jump right away to what does submission look like for between wives and husbands? There's a way that the, this idea can frame the conversation so that even if you have a question about the meaning of a verse, that is seen as, the, as a threat or it's seen as evidence that you're trying to weasel out of taking the Bible seriously. Because if you were really serious about scripture and about obedience, so the thinking would go, you would just read the Bible, You get it, and now you apply it. But I would like to think we'd be reflective enough to realize the history of your own journey and the history of the church tells us that is not a very fruitful way to engage Scripture. If you don't seek to move from what does the text say to what does the text mean, the likelihood that you're going to arrive at a a flawed understanding and therefore a flawed application of the text is pretty high. Church history is littered with interpretations of particular texts that were used to justify all kinds of sinful actions and attitudes. And it was often done by well-intended people who were trying to take the Bible seriously, but in a sense weren't taking the Bible seriously enough because they weren't really grappling with the larger context. were taking the truths of scripture and then saying, okay, boom, making it an immediate through line to application. And that can be really dangerous with verses like this. And so it's the duty of every Christian to move beyond very simple, superficial, reflexive interpretations of the Bible because we, got, we want God's word to be protected from misuse where we're just proof texting our own view, right? I, I, I have my own ways of seeing the world, ways of seeing faith that I want to be true. Hey look I found a Bible verse that supports it. Boom I've pulled that out. Here you go. I've just proven that my view is the Bible view. Right? We want to protect against that kind of um, lazy interpretation and we want to unleash the life changing power of the word of God by properly handling it. But I understand that that second question, what does the text mean, it does require work on our part. What is some of the work that is required when we move from reading the Bible? Okay, I've read this passage in Ephesians. What does it say? Okay, I get a sense of what it says. What's the work that is necessitated by us beginning to ask, what does this mean? Can anyone think of the kinds of questions or things that we would have to do to move from just what does the Bible say to begin wrestling with what does it mean? Good. So we want to look at the context on a number of levels. We want to look at the cultural context, you know, who's writing this book? Where is it being written to? How did people think about these kinds of issues at that time? We also want to look at the biblical context. Where is this taking place in the biblical story? Um, Who are the major players involved? How does that frame how we understand it, right? This is not, Ephesians is not the letter written to, it's not called the Nelson Coventites, right? It's not written to us. It's written for us, but it was written to the church in Ephesus. The Holy Spirit moves it into part of the canon of scripture, the authoritative word of God, and now we benefit from it but we don't want to read it as if it's just directly applied to us without having to think through issues of context. That's why I don't like, I understand it, well-intended, but I don't like the metaphor of the Bible is God's love letter to you because that makes it sound like you don't have to understand that it's letters written to other people for you and it can lead to that kind of easy, oh, it's... When I read Ephesians, it's just God speaking to me where I don't have to actually wrestle through levels of interpretation. And again, there's lots of ways that can be, it can be well-intended, I understand the heart of that is to say God's message is for you. And it is for you, but it's not written to you. And that's a subtle but important distinction. So we'd wanna understand the context. Is there any other things that we'd wanna grapple with before we arrived at under, like full understanding and application? So again, the context of not just the book of the Bible, but the overall biblical story, the deeper our understanding of who God is, that's going to frame how we read these things and how we interpret them. So again, there's a part, another level of context there. Something else that I think it's important for us to recognize is that we always come to the Bible. I think this is fair to say, maybe not always, a lot of the time we come to the Bible hoping it says something right? So it's easy if we aren't self-aware to say, so let's use the caricature. I'm a husband, and let's say I really want the Bible to give me license to Lord authority over my wife. If I don't check that and to realize that's my heart motivation, I'm going to be blind to all the ways uh, that I'm ignoring certain things in the text and putting certain things center stage, Right? If I come with that attitude, likely the most important thing to me is wives submit to your husbands, right? Oh, that's the point of the passage. And I need to understand that when I come to the Bible, there are certain things that I'm hoping the Bible says. So I need to check that and say, God, you reveal your truth to me. Because this isn't about searching through the Bible to figure out the verses and the themes that fit my worldview. It's over time allowing my worldview to be challenged and changed by the truth of Scripture. So we wanna understand the context of the verse. We probably wanna do some digging into the original words and meanings. How are those words used in that context? 2000 years later, we might use the same word, but it might have different connotations for us, maybe very different connotations. What expectations am I bringing to the reading? What am I hoping this text means? And am I willing to surrender what I hope it's saying to grappling with the text and arriving at a conclusion that maybe challenges where I'm coming from. And so that's why we're gonna slowly explore over the next few weeks. And I wanna lead us through this so that we can learn in our own lives how to do this process of what does the Bible say, what does the Bible mean now, what does it look like for us to apply it faithfully. So while today has been a lot of framing for the next few weeks, I do want to leave you with one element of the context that will begin to more fully inform how you read and interpret and ultimately apply this text. Now, I'll go into a little bit more about this next week, but here's just a little nugget that will maybe give you an example of how if you would have read this text before and said, what does the Bible say? How should we apply it? Just knowing this one element of context is going to maybe interrupt your eagerness to jump right away to application. You're maybe gonna say, oh, that's interesting. Wasn't aware of that. What else do I maybe need to slow down on before I jump to conclusions about what the text means and how to apply it? So here's the little, here's the little nugget. Any commentator worth their weight in, ter- in terms of taking the scripture seriously would agree that there is absolutely no doubt that the first time this letter was read out to the church in Ephesus. Maybe it was only this many people. That there would have been gasps. And there at least would have been stunned, very awkward silence. But not for the reasons that you probably suppose. One of the givens in Roman imperial culture in the first century was that the oldest male in the family had tremendous authority. So the patriarch, top of the power pyramid, oldest male in the family had authority over his entire household. And we'll explore this in more detail next week, but for today it's enough to understand that everybody receiving this letter, hearing these words for the first time, would have already had a working assumption about a number of things. They come to this text already assuming the man of the household was the ultimate authority, capital A authority. Wives, children and slaves. So everybody else in the household other than the man are under his authority. Wives, children and slaves have very specific obligations to submission and obedience to the man in order to fulfill their role within the household. Roman society reinforced this obligation to submit and to obey within the home because Roman philosophers, moving all the way back to Greek philosophers, believed as the home goes, so goes society. So if The home is a place that ignores hierarchy and authority. And if there isn't a clear line of command in the home, society is just going to unravel. So what Rome does in all kinds of ways is socially reinforce the male, oldest male in the family, is dominant, has complete authority, as a kind of picture of how the emperor has complete overarching authority over all of Rome. So the home is meant to be a microized version of the Roman Empire. This is the presumed worldview that any first century person would have had. And, it's, and it would, and you're like, well, okay, maybe if you're Roma, but what if, what if you were Jewish? It would have been the same if you were Jewish. We have no writings that give any indication there was much difference in terms of first century Jewish homes and um, Greco-Roman secular. What We, we might think of as secular, but just different homes outside of belief in the true and living God. So man has authority. Everybody else in the householder is under his authority. Everyone else needs to understand their obligations so that order in the home is maintained because order in the home will lead to order in communities, which will lead to order in society, which will lead to order in the empire, and it will allow the empire to flourish and grow. So given that single piece of cultural context, I want you to think about how shocking these words would be for those who heard them for the first time. First of all, starting at verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's addressed to everybody. The gasps, the stunned silence, those are coming from the men. Excuse me? Are you telling me I have to submit to one another? Like, what do you mean, one, like the other men? The other. What? Gears are breaking already. Wives, submit to your husbands. That's not controversial, that's status quo. That's, that's a given. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, to present to, uh, her to himself. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. No one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and he cares for it just as Christ does for the church. We're members of one body going back to genesis for this reason a man will leave his father and mother this is a profound mystery but i'm talking about christ and the church each of you must love your wife as you love yourself and the wife must respect your husband that's a long list of obligations given to husbands in a culture that essentially extended no obligations you were just an authority you were the king of your castle And Paul comes in here by the Spirit of God and says, you have obligations too. You have to take your paradigm of what it means to be a husband from Jesus, not from Rome, not from the emperor. Children, obey your parents. Men there would have been like, amen, that's right. Fathers, verse four, chapter six, do not exasperate your children. Don't conduct yourselves with them in such a way that they're frustrated because you're not seeking to understand them. You're just, pow- you're just powering through whatever you're trying to get accomplished. You have an obligation towards the weaker people in your household. That's very, very incendiary and explosive in a first century context to give children that level of rights to be protected and cared for. Slaves Obey your masters. Yeah, obviously, we know that. Okay, now masters, treat your slaves in the same way. You both serve the same Lord. You, you have to, you've, you've grown up in this culture thinking that you're the master of your household, but you are now a slave to Christ. He is your master. So now, you treat your slave the way you want Christ to treat you. Stunned silence. That's very controversial. That's very difficult to hear in a culture that would give almost carte blanche authority to men in their households. You know that he who is their master is yours also and he is in heaven and there's no favoritism. God doesn't look down and see a power hierarchy and say, oh, well, you're the man of the household. You get all kinds of privileges and power. And then if there's mistreatment of people underneath, I mean, that's their lot in life, whatever. There's a radical push there towards saying, Everybody in your household is valuable and equal in the eyes of God. So act accordingly and lead accordingly. So think about how that one piece of information, just that one, is going to alter this hermeneutic. What does the Bible say? It says it right there all this stuff. Be filled with the Spirit and have these kinds of relationships within the home between husbands and wives, and parents and children, and slaves and masters. What does the text mean? Just having that one piece of information will help us to recognize, well, it certainly doesn't mean, and it couldn't mean men are king of the castle, Um, men are given permission to wield their authority and power in any way that they want, and everyone else just needs to receive that as such. Because that was the cultural default position. And if the Spirit of God through Paul simply wanted to reinforce that, he just would have said, wives submit to your husband, children obey your parents, slaves obey your masters. This is good and proper in the Lord. Done. This section does not have to be that long. But there's lots of instructions that are given specifically to men in this context. And so the movement towards just baptizing this text as a justification for a very simplistic understanding of power over relationships and being in charge and whatever other kind of caricature we might come up with in its extreme version, That it can't be a faithful way to understand this text or to apply it. This is an expression of relationship that can't move into the direction of being domineering. It can't move into the direction of being abusive. And it can't move in a direction that, is, um, that exploits the weaker members of the household in this cultural context. See, in verse 15 of chapter five, the Spirit of God is making it clear. Be very careful how you live. Don't get drunk on wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. And I think that's an important way to understand what follows here because Spirit-filled relationships are going to look different The non-spirit-filled relationships. And they're going to be experiences very different from the inside. Even though they might have some things in common with non-spirit-filled relationships, some of the structure might look the same, some of the ways of interacting might look the same, but they're entirely from a different foundation and a different telos, a different purpose, a different trajectory. Because you have to understand this verse through one of the central themes of the gospel, which is, Jesus saying, in spirit filled relationships, wielding power and authority is going to look different than it does to people who aren't under the influence and empowerment of the spirit of God. In Matthew 20, Jesus calls his disciples around him because they're arguing about who's gonna be the greatest, who's on top, like there's 12 of us for sure, but on the hierarchy, you're number one, Jesus, obviously, but like who's number two and three? Can I sit on your right hand? My brother said on your left, can we, like vice president, VPs? So they're moving right into this power over. And Jesus calls them together, and he says, "You know, the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. They exercise authority over other people. But not so with you. The paradigm that is the default in this culture which is you get power. And the reason why power is awesome is that you get to exert your power over other people and you get to be the boss. They have to do what you want. That's why power is awesome. That's why we're all clamoring for it, right? Jesus says, not so with you. If you want to be great, then you serve. Jesus says, you should aim for greatness. And it's not wrong to seek power. But when you get it, you're gonna use it differently than other people. You're gonna use your power to become a servant. And if you wanna be first, if you wanna win at life, then be willing to be last and to be a slave. And just to head off the accusation that, Jesus, you're asking us to do something that you're not doing. He says, no, 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 think about my story. I left heaven, I left all the power, all the privilege, I've emptied myself of much of my glory And i haven't come to be served i come as a king but i come as a king who serves and not only serves but ultimately will give his life as a ransom for many so i am the paradigm i am the prototype and that verse has to challenge that theme that call has to challenge how we move in and through this text in ephesians So let's pray and ask God for help as we move in and through this text uh, in a number of kinds of ways over the coming weeks. God, it's easy to just rip through Bible texts and to read it and to say, oh, this is what it says, and to jump right into how to apply it. And sometimes, God, we don't do that because we're trying to avoid your truth. We're doing it because we're busy. We're doing it because we don't know how to grapple with the text, maybe. But God, forgive us if there have been ways that we have moved too quickly through important texts that demand more from us. Forgive us for self centered ways of interpreting the text. God, over the next few weeks, would you help us by your Spirit? Would you teach us how to correctly handle your word? take seriously what it says, to understand the context within us and without us that pushes us to understand in a richer way what it means and then to apply it faithfully, not just to apply it reactively. Help us, God. And ultimately, through this kind of mini-series in Ephesians, help us to grow in our understanding of what it means to live spirit-filled relationships with each other, to be filled with the spirit in a way that utterly transforms the default positions of our hearts as it relates to our friendships, within marriage, with children, with each other as a church God, as employer, as employee, all these different levels of relationship, God, show us in the coming weeks how the gospel transforms and challenges um, us into a new way of life for your glory and the world's good. In Jesus' name, amen.